This morning we return to Acts chapter 15, and there we're going to look at verses 23 through 29. Acts chapter 15, verses 23 through 29. The title of this morning's message is the Jerusalem Council, part 4, and we'll be looking at the restrictions. So look there with me. Let's read through these verses here at the beginning, and then we'll try to break down some of uh, the, the matter of the restrictions and the language there, and what's really been uh, controversial in uh, various views on uh, how we're to understand these restrictions. So I held this to the end, and I've uh, given you a little teaser about it as we've worked through. I hope that's been noticeable, but we'll try to take them up, and I'll do my best um, to, to work through this and, and uh, convey to you what I believe is, is um, at the heart of this language. So look with you there at the last part of verse 23. It says, the apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls. Now again, that's the council's referring there to the false teachers, the Judaizers that have come in uh, and stirred up this controversy. Verse 25, it seems good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same thing by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things uh, sacrificed to idols, and that from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. Now, when we come to this text, and again, the, the restrictions given here, I did mention early, earlier that they were given and they were certainly used as part of the need for developing unity between the Gentile community and the Jewish community there in the New Testament church, the early formation of the church. And even we'll see some language here uh, of James speaking to that reality, that there's some sensitivity there. And so he gives language to that when he reminds them that, you know, there's... Um, the, the, uh, and all throughout this Gentile region, there's uh, Jewish communities and in their synagogues, they open up uh, the, the, the Word of God and they hear from Moses. And so they're sensitive to the ceremonial laws. And they're still, and even as working now, these, both these communities coming in to the Christian faith together, coming in as followers of Christ, there's a sensitivity in the Jewish community. Uh, there's still a, a working out of how they'll deal with these ceremonial laws. So for unity's sake, that's, that's an important element here. I'm going to say this morning, I'm going to try to make the case scripturally that that's not the only thing. Many commentators will say, well, that was all there was to it. It was just for the unity. And actually, um, these requirements faded away in really a short period of time. And they would look to 1 Corinthians, particularly chapter 8 there, and uh, Romans chapter 14, but particularly 1 Corinthians because in a timeline it was written closer to this time. So they would point to that and say, well, look, you know, this stuff has faded away. It's temporary. 
And I'm going to make the case that it is not, and I'll try to convey to you why that is. But we're, we've committed here at Word of Grace to be uh, uh, exposit- to, to, to practice expository preaching verse by verse. So I felt it's important to uh, deal with this. It is, uh, there's, some, there's controversial language, there's debate over exactly how we're to understand this, and again, there's uh, a pretty large portion, and you'll see quite a few commentaries that will just simply say, the language here is a putting away of ceremonial laws for a per, for a certain period of time for sensitivity, for unity's sake, and uh, it fades away. It's temporary. These restrictions are temporary. Um, so I'm going to be in the minority there. In that regard, I'm going to say that uh, there's a little bit something else going on here, I do believe, and we'll try to work through it together. So that comes with humility. Um, I could be wrong. And uh, again, there is some controversy here, so I want you to know up front, but we need to deal with it. So I've saved it to last, and we'll try to take up the restrictions here this morning. And um, uh, may God give us wisdom and strength and mercy as we try to be like the Bereans and work through Scripture with diligence. So that said, for us to even kind of wrap our minds around this and wrap our minds around the background here and the context might be difficult in that we're, you know, we're coming from this and we're this 21st century Americans and our country was founded on Christian principles, on a Christian worldview. Now people would look back at it as we're ever increasingly becoming a more secular country. People would look back and say, oh my goodness, the founders were not Christian per se. And they would be right. Not all the founders were Christians. Not all the writers of our uh, constitution were Christians. That's true. But their worldview was shaped by a Christian worldview. That's undeniable. That's their, their understanding of the world, their, their shaping of their ideology, of their moral compass was clearly shaped from a Christian worldview. And we've lived in that context as Americans. And so it's hard for us to think about first century pagan rituals. It's hard for us to think about, now we can research them, but it's really hard for us to put our minds to thinking about the vileness, the putridness of first century pagan worship, uh, pagan practices in these temples, in these pagan temples, these temples set up for the purpose of worshiping pagan gods. The bloodletting and the sexual uh, inappropriately, uh, or the inappropriate sexual behavior that was linked to these practices. It's hard for us to even begin to to build a context for the vileness of pagan worship, of idolatrous worship there in the first century. I was trying to think back, and I had a few brushes with just some language uh, relating to to pagan practices in my time uh, working with pastors in other contexts in other countries, particularly in Cuba and a little bit in Brazil. Particularly in Cuba, there in the, in the Catholic Church, in both these areas, the Catholic Church has a, had a predominant uh, foothold in some of these communities. And with Catholicism, there was a willingness to kind of blend Catholicism with the uh, more animal uh, or more or, uh, practices of the, the communities at large. And so the more the pagan practices at large were just blended in. And the pastors that were ministering there were, would communicate with me uh, some, some stories and some details of how practices of paganism, even within a, a blended Catholic context, were still very overt and, 
quite graphic in terms of sacrifice and, and even in terms of uh, very inappropriate sexual behavior that was related to, uh, to paganism, to the local context of paganism in these cultures. So I've had a little brush with it, but again, I've been sheltered from it to a large degree, like I'm sure most of you have. Nonetheless, at the heart of these pagan practices, of this pagan idolatry, it, they, they, are, they were bloody and they were sexually perverse. So we need a, to kind of at least set our minds on those pillars. And in first century, uh, in the first century, the Jewish community was rightly appalled by these practices. They they saw them all the time, and they they preached against them. And as we've been looking through the Old Testament and, and our morning Bible study, working there verse by verse, um, uh, book by book, we've seen over and over. But that that these pagan practices were the very things that that they were appalled by, but they were also allured by. The very things that brought Israel oftentimes into sin against their God was a falling away into idolatry, a falling away into some of the practices of the pagan communities around them. So Israel had this great tension with paganism. This knowing from their culture, knowing again from the, from the ceremonial laws, from the moral law, from the civil law, from the law of Moses, that they were forbidden to them. But yet they were drawn and oftentimes taken away and captured by these practices that they knew to be forbidden. So there was this horrible ebb and flow, give and take with Israel as Israel preached against them and oftentimes fell into these exact things. So in our context here, in James' statement there, as uh, part of the council addressing this matter and these verses that we read there, 23 to 29, yes, the restrictions were put in place for unity's sake. Yes, yes, a thousand times yes. And I'd mentioned that, but I believe there's more. So we're going to try to kind of unearth some of that today. Um, they're true. They were uh, definitely part of of creating the unity. Again, they couldn't even have common meals without addressing some of this stuff. So that's there. But I don't believe they're temporary. Now again, we come to a language from Paul, particularly in 1 Corinthians, and there's language there about the eating of meat sacrificed to idols. And again, that's, that's within decades. At the earliest date, decades, you know, that 1 Corinthians is written within, um, before, you know, seven years, possibly. So it's not a long time after this council is, is met. Some people would say, well, they were temporary, and there's an evidence. And in Romans, same sort of thing. I will say to you up front, I don't believe that's the case. Paul did speak of weaker brothers and the responsibility of stronger brothers uh, not offending weaker brothers by taking meat offered by idols. The restriction is nonetheless uh, binding when we think of it in the sense of the weaker brother will be taking eating meat offered to idols in 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14, for what reason? What was the danger there? Paul Paul was saying, if you're a stronger brother, if this offends your brother, this weaker brother, don't do it. But why? Because the weaker brother might have the propensity to fall back into the practices of idolatry related to the taking. That's what I believe remains binding. So I don't believe 1 Corinthians here speaks to a putting away of this restriction. And again, we'll get into these things in a moment. 
but I want to try to at least give you the groundwork for where we're headed. So in that sense, what I'm trying to, what I'm going to convey to, uh, to convey to you concerning the restrictions today, particularly uh, some of the language, is there again, it's the, when it comes to idolatry, idolatry we know is forbidden. And here the restriction uh, is given in this context where if there were taking of meat offered to idols for the weaker brother, it's in the context of that partaking, leading one to fall into a practice of idolatry. That's the point. And in that sense, the restriction remains. So we'll, again, we'll work through some of that as we go. But I believe they have continuing moral re- uh, relevance. I don't believe they have passed away. I believe they're binding today. Now, question comes up again, uh, again right off the bat in verse 21. Uh, so let's just address that up front a little bit. Again, I mentioned, I referenced it earlier, but here it says in verse 21 that Moses, again, for, for reasoning for the restrictions here, well, and then James himself says in verse 21, from Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So yes, again, for sensibilities, yes. They're saying, there, hey, look, there's Jewish communities there. This is going to break fellowship. We can't even have common meals. All those things are true. That's part of the picture. Unity is part of the issue. But it's not only about unity. And the reason I wanted to say that up front is when we look at the restrictions, we see some, and again, people have tried to work their way around and making them all ceremonial and dealing with the language and, and addressing uh, them all as ceremonial. Or even there's been attempts to try to make them all part of the moral law and kind of reworking the language. Uh, and, and none of them are very convincing. But when we look at them, it says, No greater burden than these essentials, abstaining from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled. Now we could take all of those and kind of group them in a ceremonial law if we, if, and, and on the surface that would, that would look to be okay. But then we come to this one other, fornication, pornania. That's a moral issue. That's not part of the ceremonial law. So this one restriction, fornication, is a matter of a moral law. And so we have to figure out, okay, now what do we do with this? How do we work this out? Because now there's a blending here. And we can't just lump them into ceremonial ceremonial laws. Oh, that's been attempted. I don't believe, uh, I believe it's a weak effort. So we have fornication. And what do we do with this extra little moral law added in here? And how can that not be binding? That's not going to fade away. That is a binding reality. Uh, when we look at uh, uh, the term pornania, the term used here, it covers every kind of unlawful sexual intercourse. Every kind. So it's not here right for us to understand this. Just, just use this term and have it speak to just a specific, unique sexual sin that's tied to temple worship. The language used here is, a, is any kind of inappropriate sexual behavior. Any kind. So it's not a rare sexual ritual that's being described here by this term. And the requirement for not engaging in sexual immorality is not temporary. So we have a little bit of a conundrum here. Now, Christians are not to engage in sexual activities outside the covenant bond of marriage, right? 
And I'm just going to give you a couple of examples here out of 1 Corinthians so we can see this word used and how it's used in a very general sense, okay? 1 Corinthians 6, 13. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality. That's the word translated pornania. See, pornania is translated immorality here. But for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now that's a very general sense of that word right there. When it's translated immorality, that's a very general sense. And that's how it's used in the New Testament. Again, out of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6.18, same thing. Flee immorality. Translation, pornania. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Now, there, a very general sense of the term, how it's used in the New Testament. And it carries weight. It's binding. For, for our culture now, we're living in a culture where more and more uh, um, inappropriate sexual behavior is sort of looked at with a wink and a nod. And sadly, even so in the church. Uh, numerous times in my ministry, I have come to faithful Christian parents with young daughters and they have taken a liking to a young man who is not a Christian. And in many cases, this young man is from a broken home and um, uh, has had a rough upbringing. And what their answer is, is to bring this young man into their home while he is dating their daughter. And it has not been on one occasion. It has been numerous times. And to bring them in because it's the safest way for this relationship to be nurtured. And the outcome is always the same. Yes, and you don't have to ponder long. There is inappropriate sexual behavior. If not prior, certainly after. And it is a heartbreaking occurrence that I have experienced in my ministry numerous times. And it's kind of winked at in the church. Sexual, inappropriate sexual behavior is winked at in the church these days, sadly. Living together outside the bond of marriage is sort of winked at. But this term is heavy. It's a serious term and it carries uh, lasting ramifications. It's a heavy term. This is forbidden. And the, the leveling and minimizing of its effect that has taken place in our culture and even seeped into the church does not minimize the scriptural reverence, uh, 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 reverence of, of the term. So in other words, living outside the covenant of marriage is still not okay. But what about the other restrictions? What do we do with them? Well, abstaining from things sacrificed to idols, again, it's not temporary. It's a restriction, it's a restriction that is mandated by the council. And if we think of it as uh, um, abstaining from them in the sense of uh, if we partake of any way, it's leading down the path of falling to that particular idolatry. That's the nature of it. If we think of it like that, that's a restriction that continues. It did not pass away. And by the way, James didn't think so either. And John didn't think so. Listen to Revelation uh, chapter 2, verse 14. Now, this is decades after Corinthians. Even where, where they'll point to Corinthians and say, well, here's where the temporary aspect probably comes up. And listen to the language of Paul here. I don't find that convincing. But listen later to John. Now, this is decades 
past uh, um, 1 Corinthians. And here's the language you say that we find from John. Chapter 2, verse 14. But I have a few things against you because you have... <clears throat> there are some who hold the teaching of, of, of Balaam, who keep uh, teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. And yes, that's translated pornania. So here's warning inside the church decades later addressing the same issues. So it doesn't seem like that they were put away. It seems like they continue to be binding. Again, not eating the meat offered to idols in the sense of sliding back into idolatrous practices. So that's really binding, is it not? That's binding language. What about the restrictions of eating blood and things strangled? That really sounds ceremonial, doesn't it? I mean, surely that's put away. Well, I don't believe it's merely part of the ceremonial law. The language addresses the restriction of eating blood. So animals strangled do not have the blood uh, drained. That's why they're lumped together. So I believe these, are, these two things are related to the same reality. So in other words, when it's, when it's said there, not eating blood, and then also things strangled, so you understand there's not an exception because the things strangled would not have the blood drained. And, then, and let me just say up front, this is not, in our context, this is not about eating rare meat. Okay? It's not about having a, a, a medium rare steak. If that's your choice, <laughs> if that's your choice, uh, have at it. You know, uh, God bless you. Um, that's not what's being said here, okay? FDA regulations, they drain the blood out of the meat. What you find uh, there that seems to be a, a blood-like substance, that's protein. Myoglobin, right, brother? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, that's not the case, and that's not what's being addressed here. But there's a reason I believe this is binding, this restriction of eating blood and again, uh, the language of strangled meat would fall under that, that uh, mandate. And this restriction predates the ceremonial law. That's what I want you to say. And so that's going to bring us to our first point here, the restrictions and the Noahic covenant. And if you will, I want you to turn back with me to Genesis. Genesis chapter 9. Now that should be easy for you. That's the very first one. Genesis chapter 9. And this is, let's read through verses 1 through 17 together. And this is the covenant of the rainbow, or the Noahic covenant. This is um, the language dealing with this covenant now made after the flood with Noah. So beginning in verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of, of <clears throat> every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hands they will be given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I will give all to you as I gave green plants. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, the blood. Surely... I will require your life's blood. For every beast I will require it, 
and for every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood, sh- uh, his blood shall be shed. For, the, for in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply it. Then God spoke to Noah and said to his sons and to his sons uh, with him, saying, "Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you." And let's just hold right there for a moment. Let me hold right there just for time's sake. So, what are we dealing with here? Well, again, maybe let, allow me to back up a moment and and set something in place for us that might be helpful. There's three kingdoms in the scriptures that we have to address in terms of of God's working out His plan among men in space and time that He has created. So let me go over them with us and try to set some groundwork here for where we're coming from with restrictions. I know uh, I might be coming out of left field for you a little bit, a little bit, and the restrictions. Uh, are a little bizarre to us at times. So let's, let's maybe try to lay some groundwork here. There's the kingdom of creation. That's what we're going to look at here. That's where I'm going to try to come from in addressing the, or the Noahic covenant, the, king, the, the kingdom of creation. That was established from the broken covenant of works. God made a covenant of works with Adam and Eve. And did they keep God's covenant, children? No, they they sinned against God. So it comes from the broken covenant. After the broken covenant, the kingdom, the covenant of of the kingdom of creation was founded in the Noahic covenant. And that continues until the second coming of Christ. That, That covenant does not end until Christ returns. Next, there's the kingdom of Israel. The kingdom of Israel was established in the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the Divinic, the Divinic covenant. All these covenants typographically point to Christ. They're temporary in nature. They pass away, and they have passed away with the law and circumcision at the first coming of Christ. That's the second kingdom. The third kingdom is the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of Christ is founded in the new covenant. It's inaugurated now. It's inaugurated by the atoning work of Christ on the cross. But it will be consumed or consummated at the age to come when Christ returns again. So the kingdom of Christ was a made covenant was a covenant made a covenant kingdom made in Christ, inaugurated now but yet consummated at His next return. So there's the three kingdoms that God operates within in His creation and His work of salvation in mankind in space and time that He has made. So when we think about this, let's go back to the Noahic covenant here. That's what brought us the kingdoms, right? So the kingdom of creation is founded on the Noahic covenant. And it was made for the preservation of Creation, right? Look with me at the language again. 
So it says, God blessed Noah there in, in, in verse 1 of chapter 9, and his sons, and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Right? So it's a covenant made with Noah and his children, and it's based on the preservation of creation. The flood has happened. Now there's going to be, uh, until Christ comes, his first advent, and, until, and, and atones for his people, and then returns at his second advent to bring in the new heavens and the new earth. Now there has been a covenant made with creation. God and the human race after the flood. And by the way, this is the first time the human race is allowed to eat meat. So look there in verse 4. Or excuse me, let's back up uh, uh, to verse 3. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. Now, that wasn't true before, was it? They were vegetarians. First time they can eat meat. I will give all to you as I gave the green plant. Now, that's a reference back to prior, before the flood, when, we were, when mankind was vegetarians. First time they can eat meat. Now, here's a restriction. And the restriction comes within the kingdom of creation, prior to the kingdom of Israel, prior to the ceremonial laws. You with me? And it's binding. This kingdom, the covenants of this kingdom are binding. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Until the return of Christ. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So that's forbidden. So now if we look at that, we see restrictions given by James. Fornication, we know that's binding. But now we see the eating of blood being binding. We know that the partaking of, of anything offered to idols in the context of drawing one into practicing any of that idolatry is binding. So we can look at them now and see that they're all binding. Although they have a, at first glance, they may, three of them may have a ceremonial uh, aspect to them. But if we take them and look at this in the kingdom of creation context here, we see that the eating of blood is binding. If we rightly think of a partaking of idolatry, we know that's binding. Fornication, binding. So now we have restrictions that all fit together and would have a purpose and would remain. And we don't have this um, kind of blending of ceremonial laws with this one oddball uh, moral law that remains binding where the others were passing away. And so now we have a context that gives us some consistency. But let's look at this and try to fill it out a little more and hopefully it'll make uh, sense to you as we work along here. So here's a question that we have to ask ourselves. Have the mandates for the kingdom of creation passed away? Have they passed away? Let's look at something else. Here we, we're looking at the, 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 um, the eating of blood. And by the way, the point here is that life is in the blood. That's the, the picture of Leviticus 17.11, right? Life is in the blood. And the restriction here is that we cannot, we cannot eat blood because that, def, that, that is in defiance of God because God is the creator of man. The life is in the blood and God is creator. When there's the practice of eating blood partaking of the blood, it is, it is an act of defiance against God, saying, no, actually, I'm my own. And I'll defy you as creator. So that's the point. And it's a restriction that was given, again, in the kingdom creation covenant with Noah. That's binding. 
So there's the theological point. It's simply that Christ is that God is creator. And the point of that is that the life is in the blood. And to violate that and take that, into, and take that upon oneself, to lord over it, is to mock and, uh, and shake your fist at God. That's the point. I'm saying that it still remains because where we find it, what covenant we find in it. So here's some things to think about as we look at that. Is the command to be fruitful and multiply? Has that passed away? That comes in the covenant of creation. Has it passed away? No, it has not. The promise of protection from wildlife there. Do you see that? Verse 2. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and with every creeping thing on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hands I will give them. Has that passed away? No, it has not. What about the death penalty there in 5 and 6? And by the way, when we find uh, um, application for a death penalty here, that's implied application for a civilization, right? So you're looking, at the, you're, you're looking at the groundwork for a civilized community. And here's step one, the death penalty. Look here. Verse 5. Surely I will require, uh, uh, require your lifeblood from every beast. I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of a man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he is made. Now there's a death penalty for murder given to us right there. Has that passed away? Now in some ever-increasing secular communities, there's been man-made legislation to, work, to, to attempt to have this pass away. But it, has it passed away in the Word of God? In other words, is this temporary or is this binding? It's binding. Has the sign of the rainbow passed away? Look at verses 12 and 13. God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature. Again, this is a, a, this is a kingdom of creation, a covenant. Noahic covenant is a covenant of the preservation of creation until Christ's second return. So here we see that as it's binding in the, in the bow. This is a sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living, every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a sign for a covenant between me and the earth. Has that passed away? You've seen a rainbow in your lifetime. It's binding. So then the question comes, has the prohibition, the prohibition against eating blood passed away? Uh, I contend that it has not, and we, if we understand it rightly. So viewing the restrictions as ceremonial and temporal, I don't believe is how James stated them. I believe James and the other apostles described them in the letter as, a, uh, they described them as something that's binding, and they used this language there if you look back over in chapter 15 of Acts, look there in verse 28 and see how they describe them in the letter. This is a letter that's going out to these Gentile churches. And just listen to how he describes them. He says, uh, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And they're, they're laying themselves uh, under the, 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 the leading of the Holy Spirit. And it says, It seemed 
good for the Holy Spirit into us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. Now, do we think of essentials or something that's going to pass away? That's not language of things that pass away. They're essential. They're essential for who we are as Christians, both Jew and Gentile. Is there a matter of unity here? Yes. Is there a matter, a, a, a matter of, of propriety, uh, of uh, appeasing the conscience of, of uh, Jewish brethren to some degree? Yes. But I believe there's far more to the language when we understand it rightly. And there's a heavy weight of the mandate of prohibition of certain things in the kingdom creation, in the covenant, the Noahic covenant, that we cannot ignore. So these are essential burdens. That is to say, they're part of the weight of Christian living. Now, are they conditions for justification? No. A thousand times, no. They are not. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Christ has come. He has wrapped Himself in flesh. He has lived a perfect life under the law. He has fully fulfilled the law rightly in as the unique God-man. He has ascended the cross and there made atonement for all who repent and believe on Him. He has atoned for them. He has bore the righteous wrath of Almighty God on our behalf. There He has taken His righteousness earned in the law and imputed it into our account and bore our sin debt earned before a holy God and bore it in His body. There's only one that can do that, the unique God-man. There uh, binding Himself to man, identifying with mankind, and yet remaining God and that He is the only one that can bear uh, an eternal offense against an eternal God. That takes an eternal being. There He made atonement for His people. That's the Gospel. And we are justified by faith in Christ alone. So there is no need for the taking of circumcision. There is no more need for the ceremonial law. There is no more need for the law of Moses. But these restrictions were given and they are binding because they have to do with the moral nature of the moral law which remains binding on God's people and all of humanity. Are these things necessary to earn salvation? No, they are not. They are necessary burdens. And it says here, Paul says to the Gentile, they're necessary burdens of the Christian life. Necessary, and if you keep these things, if you remain there in verse 29, if you keep yourselves free from such things, what? You will do well. Not you will keep unity for a certain period of time and then things will, uh, you know, things will liven up between us and we'll have some common meals and we'll all get along and then they'll pass away. Now if you do this, you'll do well. In other words, you'll walk rightly because they pertain to the moral law. If understood rightly, I believe before God that's where I'm coming from this morning. So that takes us to accepting the restrictions. And again, I want to keep us there in verse 28. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. And here they're listed for us. Abstain, uh, abstain from things sacrificed to idols for the purpose of falling, if there's a purpose of falling in to idolatrous practice. That's the context. If that's the case, abstain. We're supposed to abstain from such things and from blood and from things strangled. The eating of blood, that's a restriction that comes to us in the Noahic covenant. It's binding. And from fornication, that's part of the moral law and moral and the moral 
binding aspect with the other language, I believe, so they're consistent here, and that's binding. If we do this, we'll do well. Well, here's the question. Why just these requirements? I mean, that's, that's you know, it's not all-encompassing, is it, of what we're to abstain from in the Christian life? So why just these? Well, here's what I believe is going on, and again, why this, we need to try to put this in context to make this consistent. I believe the apostles affirm the Gentiles as those who are also saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. They've affirmed that. That's clear here. And they're addressing the, the, the protest against the Judaizers who are trying to bring works back into the equation. But the apostles also had to address the holiness the Christian ethic, the changed life. So yes, in other words, the apostles could not come up, again, with the Judaizers breathing down their neck. They're ready to pounce on this, are they not? Well, yes, of course the Gentiles can be welcomed in by grace through faith in Christ alone and go about their business of remaining in the temples. Well, of course. And the Judaizers would pounce on this, right? See? See their vileness? See what you're doing by preventing them from falling under circumcision in the law? It's, it's, like, it's the classic first little glimpse at antinomianism, right? And they're going to pounce on it. So the apostles have to act wisely here. And they have to address Christian living. In other words, okay, the Gentiles can come in by grace through faith in Christ alone. They can come in just like the rest of us, trusting Christ without taking upon circumcision or binding themselves to the Mosaic law, which comes with taking on circumcision. Remember, we can't extract the two from each other. That's That's a package deal. And again, Peter said this was a this was a, a, a an actual unacceptable burden. And here we have essential burden. That's two different things. So what we have here is yes, and here's a snapshot. Here's a capturing, a nutshell of what Gentiles and Jewish and the Jewish community alike for that matter, but Gentiles the Gentile community was known for this stuff known for their pagan practices, known for their idol worship and just horrible, bloody, sexually graphic practices of paganism in these temples. The Jewish community, again, was very sensitive. We're looking at years and years and years of pushing back against this theologically and succumbing to it and our physical weaknesses and back and forth and just the struggle and the eroding away of the Jewish community so often throughout space and times as they struggled with their, the paganism of the Gentile cultures around them again and, and uh, affecting them and infecting them. And so this is a sensitive matter here. And what better way in the human mind to put away with it? Okay, they can come in. Okay, they can come in by faith. <laughs> but they got to bind themselves to the law. Or they're going to run right back to the temples. And who are, we to, who are we to condemn it? And so the apostles address this beautifully, I believe, and capture it right here. 
So this is, if you will, a nutshelling, not of every condition, but a capturing of the heart of the matter in a very practical way. Again, addressing the holiness of the Christian life, the Christian ethic, and the reality of the changed heart. So there, there is a lifestyle now that uh, Gentile and Jew alike, if they, they come to Christ on faith, on, fa- on, on faith, by grace, then the heart is changed. Christ comes in and life is changed. And so they're saying here, here's a matter of issues that will result from your coming to Christ by faith alone. Here's what will, take, here's what will transpire. Now your life will be supernaturally changed by your God. By Christ now coming and uh, supernaturally imputing His righteousness into your account. And the Holy Spirit now taking up permanent residence in your heart. Here's what will transpire. Your life will now be lived out differently. You will now live and walk in a newness of life. And here's a snapshot of what that will look like, particularly in regard to what you've been known for and your pagan practices. You with me there? That, I believe, is what they're trying to convey here. So Gentiles can be saved, but they can't be saved and continue to dabble in idolatry, can they? No. Because the indication of the genuine salvation is in the changed life. And James and the apostles have captured that indication, I believe, sweetly and rightly in these few restrictions. Why these few? Because that's what they were notoriously known for. We've got all the epistles. Paul addresses in detail all the matters of Christian ethics and Christian living down to the minute detail. We have it in the letters. But here in the council, they take the bulk and just lay it out there because, hey, here's what what the Judaizers will go after. Here's what you're known for. Here's what you're most notoriously known for. And we're just going to head that off. So he captured it right here. They knew that the Judaizers would be after this, and they knew that the Gentiles can't be Christian and even enter the pagan temples. So again, I believe the, the meaning of verse 21 is simply this, that Gentiles as Christians need to condemn the practice of idolatry fully. And the same is true for us today. And again, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around a little bit when we think about idolatry. But we're now, we're now living as Christians in an ever-increasing secular culture. And the notion of idolatry, I believe, will come to the surface, will rise to the surface a little more clearly and fully as you continue to live as Christians in an ever-increasing secular culture. But nonetheless, they were immersed in this kind of culture. And it was important that now these Gentile Christians come and they condemn it. If not, the Judaizers will condemn free grace, right? They'll push for circumcision. They'll push for the law. Again, the Judaizers hated the gospel. Man, they hounded Paul all throughout his ministry, did they not? They hated the gospel of grace. They would pounce on this. You're going to let them come in to the Christian community and nothing? Nothing about pagan practice? So wisely, the apostles head this off here. So the apostles condemn idolatry with these restrictions. That's the centerpiece of my point here. 
The acceptance of the restrictions is really the acceptance of the apostles condemning idolatry. And in a very wise and consistent way, they do so with these restrictions. So, again, they do not exhaust the duties of Gentile Christians or any Christian for that matter. But the, the, uh, the epistles follow up wonderfully with, with that reality. The restrictions singled out here are simply singled out because they're notorious restrictions or they're, they're notorious uh, uh, um, practices that, that just indicate the centerpiece of the evils of Gentile paganism. And James speaks to this idolatry. And Christian Gentiles now can't be accused of continuing in their pagan feast. Now that's, not, that's going to be something that there's no question about. He deals with it here. The council deals with it. They couldn't be silent, could they? There's no way they could be silent on this. So they deal with it in this way. They give these binding, I believe, restrictions that sort of capture the whole notion there and again accentuate the pagan temple worship because they were most notoriously known for, for that kind of behavior. And finally, I want you to see valuing the restrictions. That kind of comes home for us when we think about valuing the restrictions. Verse 29. These are the essentials here, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication. If you keep yourself free from such things, you will do well. So what can we learn from these restrictions? That's the question, right? Now we get to the, the, the back end here, and that becomes a question, does it not? My goodness, okay, we're listening. Um, maybe we're putting the pieces together with you, brother, but what does it have to do with us? Where's the application? Well, let me try to address some things here and, and, and tie, these, tie these things together. Yes, salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. Yes. But that does not mean that Christians can live as they please, correct? And that still pertains to us today. So, for application, Christ perfectly kept the law for us. In that light of that grace, we strive and desire to keep the moral law. Why? Here's why. Because it expresses the genuineness of our salvation secured in Christ alone. That's why we strive to obey Him. That's why we strive to keep the moral law. That That is an overflow of what Christ has done on our behalf. If Christ has bore our sins in His body and has saved us and ransomed us from sin from our slavery to sin and brought us into His glorious kingdom and granted us the gift of the indwelling Spirit, the result of that is our chaste uh, chaste life, our desire to live in obedience to Him, our heart's desire to hate sin and fight hard to live righteously by the power of the indwelling Spirit, granting us enabling grace to walk in righteousness. That's our heart's desire. That heart's desire is an overflow of what God has spiritually done in our lives. So yes, it is by grace. But grace by no means gives us freedom to live as we please. Because we have been saved by grace, the evidence of that 
is a changed life, a transformed life that now longs to walk in righteousness, longs to adorn the gospel of grace. That's exactly what you're doing when you walk in righteousness. You're putting on, you're adorning, you're wearing outwardly in your behavior the gospel of grace. In other words, you're a walking signpost. You're a walking neon sign that says, God Almighty has reached down and changed my wretched life. He has reached down and snatched out a wretch like me and brought me into His kingdom. And now this is what it looks like to belong to Christ. I am a new creature. I am no longer a slave to sin. I am now a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what it looks like to belong to Christ. That's adorning the gospel of grace. And when we adorn the gospel of grace, it leaves no room for fleshly men to scorn the gospel, does it? And you say, oh, brother, but they scorn. They scorn. Yes, they do, but they don't scorn rightly, do they? Nowhere in their hearts do they rightly scorn the gospel and look at your life. They'll scorn, but they'll never scorn rightly. That's what it means to adorn the gospel. That's what it means to really have these restrictions in place with meaning that's binding. They're they're part of what it means to be saved and we live them out by the grace of God. So keeping the moral law is pleasing to God. It's honoring to God. It's part of your heart's desire. It demonstrates that you love God. It doesn't minimize the grace of God that's been lavished upon you. Actually, it accentuates the grace of God that's been lavished upon you because it says to, you, it says to the world, and more importantly, to your God, here's the result of your saving work. Righteousness. Perfect righteousness poured out into a a, a fallible sinner. Now lived out in the weakness and frailty of a sinner by your amazing grace to your glory, imperfectly, but with full-on desire and love and passion that you might be glorified in the life that you have now redeemed. That's the look. That's the picture. That's what's going on here. That's the valuing of such restrictions that at first glance seem ceremonial and silly. But actually, I believe they're far more valuable and beautiful and deep and binding. But what we do with such things, what we do when we get to these areas, well, like the apostle, we guard against the obvious attacks on our doctrine. That's what I believe this is, a very wise heading off of attacks on our doctrine. We must do that. We must be balanced. We must be wise. We must be careful. We still live in the kingdom of creation. Restrictions there are still binding. And we still must be careful. Now, do we have to keep the law of Moses fully? No. Do we have to keep the ceremonial laws? No. Do we have to take up circumcision? Praise God, no. That was part of Israel, right? And Israel has passed away. That kingdom has passed away. That's no longer binding. But we do have to keep the laws of creation, the kingdom of creation, because it continues. It continues to the second coming of Christ. So everything in the Old Testament being done away with is not true. It's not true. We have to be careful there because that language is out there, right? 
Well, and that's, that's all been put away in Christ. Well, it's all been fulfilled in Christ, but it's not all been put away. And here's example number one right here. And we find it in a restriction. Man, there's the kingdom of creation, and those things are binding. So be careful. Be careful there. We just, as Christians, sometimes we just, we're sloppy with our theology. We just stood out there. Well, that's been covered in Christ. That's just put away. Well, the ceremonial law is put away. But that's not everything in the Old Testament, is it? So be careful. Be diligent. The ordinance of the kingdom of creation, they do remain. And we must be wise in how we figure out how to, to uh, walk circumspectly there and, and understand how to manage that and what it means for us as Christians today. So he doesn't do away with the ordinances of marriage. He doesn't do away with the ordinance of gender binaries. That's part of the kingdom of creation. That's not gone away. That's relevant for us, isn't it? And they will come on, the eating of blood. Okay, I get it. God is creator and we can't shake our fists at him and, and mock his authority over creation, particularly his authority over mankind creating in his, in his image. We can't do that. Okay, I'm listening to you say that's binding. But take up the kingdom of creation mandates. Marriage is in there, Right? Gender binary is in there, right? That's important, isn't it? Isn't that being assaulted in our culture? That's binding on us. We can't just wink and nod at that and just kind of let that, the flow of, that, of abuse of those binaries uh, and, and the institution of marriage just sort of erode away because it erodes away in our culture around us. That's not how we honor God. So these things are true for us today. And idolatry. Idolatry is true for us today, the abstaining of idolatry. So the worship of false gods leads to vile behavior. That's what, we, that's what the Scripture testifies to us all throughout the pagan community that surrounded Israel in the Old Testament and into the New Testament. And that we continue to see today with the pagan culture around the church. All the way till Christ returns, that's going to be a reality. There's going to be the worship of idols, the worship of false gods. And where you see the worship of false gods, you will see vile behavior. You will see blood in the streets and and, and you will see sexual uh, uh, um, abhorrent behavior. And a fallout of those things that could just be, that, that can go on and on. So that's a fact for us. So what do we do in terms of application? Well, the bloody worship and the sexual abhorrent behavior in the temple worship is, is kind of foreign to us. That is you know, something in some little snapshot of history that's hard for us to relate to. But let me put it this way. We must take this and make it personal for us. True religion produces morality that is pleasing to God. The worship of False gods produce sinful behavior, immorality that is displeasing to God. That's, that's about as, as straightforwardly as I can put it. That never changes. There's, there's no marrying of those, of those two. There, there's no mushy middle there. That is very strict. You're either worshiping God and honoring Him or you're worshiping a false god and dishonoring Him. So that brings me to the application and it fits well with what Chris was taking us to, through this morning with the Old Testament Israel. And how we can look abhorrently on their behavior and remove ourselves from it. But the whole point is that we must realize that, hey, we're just as vile as we see uh, there in those those texts of Old Testament Israel. We're just as vile. And so what do we do? 
We guard against idolatry. We still struggle with idolatry. Idolatry is a real danger for us today. So, let me put it like this in in terms of application. Anything in your life that you struggle with in terms of loving more than God at any particular time is your struggle with idolatry. Does that make sense? Anything. Anything that competes at any time with your affection for God is a struggle with idolatry. So what do we do? Well, we pray. What do we do for our children? Well, we teach them faithfully and we pray that they will lay hold of the same truth. And we strive to live godly lives. Guard against idolatry. Take Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's the nutshell of all the commandments, is it not? Take that and bathe that in prayer daily. Take the first commandment. What's the first commandment? No other gods before your God. What we cannot do is look at idolatry as some first century thing that happened to first century people that was only to do with the vile, horrid, bloodletting and sexual immorality practiced in the temples and that's it. We can't do that. We must take the forbidding of that and bring it into the reality of our lives as Christians here in in 21st century North America and say, God, reveal to me on a daily basis the things that I allow to creep in and compete for my love and affection for you. What do I have in my life that, that, that competes against you sitting on the throne of my heart continually? That's what we have to do in terms of applying this text rightly to us. What do you love? There's the question. There's the prayer. What do you love? We must get before our God on a daily basis and really ask ourselves before God, what do we love? And if you think we're above all of this, um, I would say in times past it would just pertain to the men, but uh, for, for, and these days, you know, we've we kind of sucked our ladies into this same thing. Look, um, it can be something as insignificant and feeble and tawdry as an NFL team. That's how pitiful we are. You think we're above this? You think we're above idolatry? We've got men and now sadly women that will worship an NFL team above their practicing of their faith and worshiping God. They'll time God around watching their team. You want to look at first century Gentile paganism with a, uh, from a haughty uh, uh, looking down your nose at it? That's how bad we are. So this applies to us today. Idolatry leads to sin. And we can't live as idolaters. That's to change life. God did not save us and indwell us for us to continue to live as idolaters. So we live as needy people, filled by the Holy Spirit, quickened by the Holy Spirit, to hate our sin 
and walk in ever-increasing righteousness. If you see your need for Christ here in any idolatry in your life, go to Him. Go to Him by faith and be cleansed. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank You for this, um, this text for, for Acts 15. It is multi-layered. It is um, wonderful. It is glorious. It, is, it has um, aspects that are, that are where there's controversy. I pray this morning that our look at the restrictions would be honoring to You and edifying to Your people. I pray that You would help us through this little look at these restrictions to take a more sobering look at our own struggle with idolatry, for we are not free from that struggle by any means, and that you will continue to cleanse our hearts and strengthen us as your people to live in obedience to you and be a reflection of your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.